0: Welcome to the Makers and Mystics Podcast, Season 8, Episode 1, the season opening. Before we get into today's episode, I want to say thank you to our growing community of listeners and supporters around the world who enable us to curate these conversations on the creative and spiritual life. We are thrilled for this season's upcoming discussions, artist introductions, and community events. You can visit makersandmystics.com and follow us on Instagram at makersandmystics to keep in the know. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for taking the time to listen in. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and continue with us for the journey ahead. Today's episode features a conversation with writer and director Ryan Daniel Dobson of the feature film Hosea, along with the film's music composer Michael Gunger of Gunger Music and the Liturgist podcast. After studying theology in college, Ryan turned his attention to the entertainment industry with a focus on marrying theological and philosophical concepts to powerful visual storytelling. The film Hosea follows this trajectory with a modern adaptation of the biblical narrative by the same name. The film takes place in the southern landscape of Oklahoma and follows the story of a young girl by the name of Kate and her childhood friend Henry. Kate's story is one of substance abuse, mental illness, prostitution, and the search for self-worth and acceptance. You can discover more about the film by visiting hoseafilm.com or by following the link in the show notes of this episode. This is my conversation with film director Ryan Daniel Dobson and music composer Michael Gunger. Ryan and Michael, it's an honor to have you on Makers and Mystics. Thank you both for joining me today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: I'm excited to talk with you both about the film Hosea and about the music composition for the film. So I'm going to dive right in with this. One thing that fascinated me about this film is the premise of taking a biblical story that I think in many previous iterations has been very sanitized, very whitewashed, if you will, made to be a Sunday morning friendly version of what's otherwise... A pretty difficult narrative. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we're dealing with here. And I'll go ahead and say it right off that this film is not for the faint of heart. I had the opportunity of watching a pre-screening of the film, and I loved it from the first scene to the last. But it's certainly
2: not your typical sanitized interpretation of the story. Oh, thank you. You know, words like "sanitized." Those are themes that I've been thinking about for quite a while now, in terms of this biblical story, but a lot of sacred stories. And I think myself, and I know a lot of us have had similar experiences of arriving at a stage in our growth where we look back on narratives that have become hallowed to us, and uh, and realize that we we've pictured those people, those humans, living in those spaces as kind of uh, you know, for me, it was, I think I imagined them in some kind of white robes living in this vacuum space mm-hmm. uh, rather than real people walking the dusty streets of ancient Mesopotamia and, and the, the character traits that they had, the flaws. And I found myself wanting to put all that back onto the story instead of stripping it away.
0: One of the other interesting facets about your take on this story is that you set it in
2: Gomer's point of view rather than the traditional patriarchal perspective. Tell me some about that choice. So I I grew up in Southern Colorado and then went to a a university in Oklahoma City where we were required to go to chapel a number of times a day, or a number excuse me, a number of times a day, my goodness, Um, a number of times a week. I would have believed uh, you. Yeah, yeah, that's totally plausible. (laughs) So I, I was kind of going through this journey of studying theology and realizing the way that I had sanitized these stories in my own mind and I became so fascinated by that idea of putting flesh back on these people that I, I found myself doing it just over and over again with stories like I was reading them brand new. And I have this very clear memory of sitting in this chapel and someone preaching on this passage in a way that I think a lot of us have probably heard numerous times where Hosea represents the divine and represents this unconditional love, you know, takes on the male gender and, and is this man who wants to provide for this woman, this loving house, a place for family. And this woman represents almost like this Freudian id. Um, you know and I, I remember this this preacher talking about how Gomer uh, left this loving house and three beautiful children and went back to sell herself. And I remember thinking, that doesn't sound like a real human being to me. that that just doesn't sound uh, that sounds like we want a person to function as an idea rather than a person being human. And I started to become just so interested in what would her circumstances have to have been like for the decisions that this story says she makes to have made sense. Mm-hmm. Maybe the pain of growing up in a certain circumstances and the, um, the identity wrapped up in something like uh, abuse was too painful to stay in in that home. And so I I found myself wanting to imagine a scenario where the steps, the narrative steps that she takes make sense within that context.
0: Michael, what about you? What was some of your creative approach to this story as you were composing the music to go along with this narrative?
2: Well, I love that the
1: film, I think it stands alone as a story you don't need. to like, you know, some some films that are, based or allude to other narratives biblical narratives are kind of often relying on the devotion of the the viewer (laughs) in some way (laughs) like it can yes uh, then the story can pass without being a good story so I was just in it for the story of the film itself like I I was engaged in those characters Mm -hmm. I didn't need the illusion but the illusion is a nice uh, like it adds another layer mm-hmm. of of depth and that's cool. But there's a lot of emotion to just pull right from the screen itself, what the from the images and the story.
2: I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but the first time you saw the film, I didn't think you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Have we talked about this. So we were connected through a mutual friend. And I think because the film comes from a, you know, is sort of anchored in this scriptural narrative, I felt like I had to write an email to Michael with a lot of disclaimers because people, you know, like people think as soon as they hear that, they think they know what it is, right? They think right. Right. that it's a proselytizing film that's meant to like tell you that you should follow a specific worldview. So we had this screening here in in Los Angeles and we we just had a quick exchange after the small screening and I was like, oh man, he hated it. Ah, he hated it. Uh, So when you emailed me back and said you were excited to work on it, I was pretty freaking thrilled. Oh,
1: I'm sorry that I came across
2: incorrectly. No, I didn't hate it. I'm an Enneagram 7. I need like lots of obvious affirmation. Like I, I really need you to show me how you feel.
1: Yeah, and I'm an enneagram five, and this is an, this is obvious
2: affirmation. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> oh, oh, I caught it barely. <laughs>
0: I'm an enneagram four five, but I'm married to a seven, so maybe I can oh, help you guys, you know, reconcile you. something you right here. You could know? mediate
2: this. That'd be great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love what you said, Michael, about sometimes people making religious-themed films are reliant upon the devotion of the audience, and how that can lead to making some really bad creative choices. Mm-hmm. But one thing I loved about this film is that I felt free from any of the proselytizing or any of the underlying motivations that you mentioned earlier, Ryan, and I was able to engage this as a work of art and let it impact me the way that it impacted me as a work of art,
2: and not because it was telling me what I was supposed to think about it. That makes me feel very rewarded to know that you experienced that. Um, I've been, I know a lot of fiction writers uh, have been very influenced by Flannery O'Connor's thoughts on these topics, but. Throughout the whole process of making this film, I kind of kept coming back to some of her writing and this idea that if you can read a story or, or watch a movie and then very clearly point to like here's what the message of the story was, then it probably right. wasn't a very good one. Um, <laughs> you know, she she says that I think it was a story really isn't good unless it resists paraphrase mm. and that it should hang on and expand in the mind. I hope that that's what we've done. You know, this is a piece of art, and I think like a lot of artists, I see the flaws in it, but I'm. I'm proud of it to the extent that it's, I've already been able to see and experience other people participating in the art and having that, that experience of days and weeks down the road, having the story continue to expand to them and, and being a, a vehicle through which they can go to other places in their life and talk about things with other people that they might not otherwise talk about. You said that you recognize the flaws in this film. What do you mean
0: by that? How how do you contend with that? Cuz I know as a lot of artists would struggle with perfectionism especially when you've got so much invested in a piece.
2: Oh yeah, I have a lot of eggs in this basket. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's a great question. There's I think there's surely a multitude of reasons. One is I might be sort of preparing myself and emotionally guarding myself for, you know, I think you've talked on this podcast with other artists before about how we kind of internalize criticism and anticipate it in some ways. So some of it might be that, but part of what's interesting about filmmaking is it's such an incredibly long process in most cases, especially with indie films, where you're working with just a shoestring budget and you have to really rely on the good graces of a lot of people. It slows the whole thing down So part of what that means is you spent a long time with this single piece of art, right? And I think it has forced me to to reconcile some things of like, uh, that relates to from, you know, going from script to screen of like, man, I wish we could have done that, but just practically we didn't have the resources to, to even, I've changed. I mean, like I started writing this story eight years ago. So a lot has changed in eight years. I mean, even in terms of, you know, the, the ideas and the script this story existed before the me too movement not not that i'm having original ideas but it was with with the rise of that movement all of a sudden we realized oh man there's a lot of people wanting to have this conversation right now Mm -hmm. so that's happening while the movie's in in pre-production so we're we're constantly i'm constantly then looking back on what what the story has been what it's becoming what it's still becoming as it enters the world and people actually experience it and not all of those things are exactly what i would want it to be but I, mm-hmm. I do, I, I am trying to hold it a little bit loosely because I feel like if I hold it too tightly, I won't get to go make another one. I'm curious to
0: know about the creative collaboration between the two of you and Michael, how the, the imagery in the film and how the characters impacted your musical choices and how the conversations between the two of you worked. And if you sat and composed to the film or, Tell me some about the process between the two of you.
1: Yeah, so I saw a screening of the film with, with temp music in there and everything. So I had already kind of an emotional feel of the characters based on what they had already inserted. But then I liked spending some time with like the no no music version to just feel it from scratch. Because mm-hmm. it really... It's crazy. I mean, I think everybody knows to some level how music can change a scene. Mm-hmm. But it really can so drastically change the emotional yeah. timbre yeah. of mm-hmm. of everything.
0: I was talking to someone one time and they they did this kind of a sample of how that works and they played a scene of a woman walking down the street and you know the music that they accompanied with it at first was like this light major key fluffy with flutes and everything and you just know this lady's having the best day of her life you know and then suddenly they changed the music to the minor and then right. suddenly it just gets <laughs> yeah. a little more ominous and you just think somebody's chasing this woman you know she's about to get clubbed over the head or something you know anyway yeah. it's 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 so fascinating how the film and the music really do complement the emotional landscape of a film
1: yeah for me it, it becomes the emotion mm-hmm. that you're feeling i mean it is like it is so foundational to and so there were there were scenes that like the first pass for, for ryan was like yeah that's that's the zone there were other things it was like that's way too intense <laughs> um like one of the abuse scenes Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The music, my first pass, made it just so intense. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm trying to remember exactly what you said. We had a very careful conversation about toning it down a little bit. And I think you said, well, I guess you want you want potatoes. I was really hoping to give you steak. And I was like, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, said that? But, I mean, you. it still has that. This stage we're talking about in terms of the process of filmmaking is just one of my absolute favorites because... I've lived with this story and seen it on screen hundreds of times in the editing bay without any music. And then all of a sudden, Michael can come in and just absolutely transform it. Uh, In particular, that the last scene in the film. Mm -hmm. When I watched the last scene in the film with Michael's music laid in, it was the first time that I had ever cried at my own movie. Um, It just so transformed and made that scene more powerful. Mm. But this scene he's talking about with the, the abuse scene where it just, I have a pretty high tolerance for that stuff. And even for me, I was like, I don't, <laughs>
1: <People> <laughs> and it's like, it's like four, 14 minutes into the movie, Michael.
2: Okay, I have to tell you, so this is a little bit of a spoiler for our friends who, I, I hope people listening will have a chance to see the movie. So this will make a little more sense, but we're at a screening at a film festival And I can't, when we screen the movie at a theater, I cannot sit in the seats. I just get so antsy. And so, but I sit, if we're in a theater, I stand in that kind of walkway off to the side. You know, the audience is kind of in that, the risers. Uh, so, I'm in this walkway to the side, and the movie is at this spot we're talking about, which is 14 minutes in, and there's this rhythmic, dissonant music that's just under- undergirding this very dark scene literally and emotionally a dark mm. scene on screen. And these two women walk in behind me, each with a big bucket of popcorn and a soda, and one of them taps me on the shoulder and she says, Excuse me, sir, is this the secret laugh of pets, too? <laughs> like, <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> uh,
0: uh, that that would have yeah. been quite the rude awakening for them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they
1: went real dark with the sequel on that you one. I, I did. hope you just told them I was them like, yes. hey, we need bodies in these seats. <laughs> it
2: is.
0: Yeah, it is.
2: They were like, <laughs> there were no animals. Yes, he's
0: like, these are the deleted scenes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned the, the final scene of the movie and I emailed you, I think, late last night and I was just like, oh my gosh, I am so looking forward to having this conversation because I was really impacted. I'm not going to say anything else to spoil it, but I will encourage everyone to watch it, especially the end scene. It was perfect to me. Mm. Uh, It just encapsulated everything. And and the symbolism that I found in that, it's hard for me to talk about it without talking about it, you know. but the symbolism that I found in that final scene really was a visual poetry. And Mm. that was one of the things I loved about the film is it the whole thing felt like a visual poem. And even on the music, there were a lot of scenes that had complete silence i mean I, I as as much as the composition was there there was an intentional sparseness that i felt in the music and in the way that it related to the film that worked in a positive way it drew me in but there were many scenes where the silence really captivated me as well
2: yeah thank you
1: i love that i love yeah i love the choices that you made with silence as well
2: yeah and michael had such a careful hand we talked early on in the film about not not being too heavy handed with the music and the places that we chose to use it undergirding the scene, but not pushing anyone. And there are still places where the mu- music is very prominent and very powerful. Yes. But I feel proud of the the music he composed and that it doesn't, I don't think it forces anyone's hand. That scene though is particularly interesting to me. Well, for a slew of reasons, but in terms of the music, it's the only place that the, the music Michael composed has words to it. And that was the thing we went back and forth on. But once I saw it cut in, it just, it was so powerful. It was so powerful. And Mm -hmm. there's, that scene is also really beautiful. Getting back to what I was saying earlier about how much I like this stage of the filmmaking process that we're talking about, because there are also some really beautiful Edits that our editor made in terms of some of the flashbacks that happened in that moment. And the combination of those careful, thoughtful edits, some really amazing cinematography from our DP, Arlene Mueller, and then Michael's music just made for a scene that I'm very proud of.
0: Well, I want to go back to something we were talking about at the beginning because I'm really fascinated in knowing your thought process behind this and and dealing with this subject matter. Because this story, Hosea, is anchored in the biblical story, but it also stands in opposition to some of the common assumptions that their family or Christian in nature or a moral to the story. And if proselytizing or trying to kind of force-feed the audience with a particular way of thinking is not your intention in handling this, I would be curious to know what would be some of the takeaways that you would hope the audience... Uh, would pull from
2: this film. Thank you for asking that question. You know, when people approach this story of Hosea, um, it's this short biblical narrative in a relatively short biblical book. Uh, Just a few verses at the beginning of these first couple of chapters that then lead to a bunch of poetry. And in this story, it says that God comes to this prophet Hosea and is frustrated with God's relationship with the nation of Israel. And as allegory for that relationship tells Hosea to go and marry, a, it says a woman of whoredom. Um, and so he goes and marries this woman named Gomer. They have three kids together. He gives them these terrible names. And then she disappears from the story. And it says, God comes back to Hosea and says that she is now with another man. Um, and we don't know why exactly, but eventually we understand that Hosea is told by God to go back and get her. And he goes and he pays money for her. So she's ended up in some kind of enslaved position. And, you know, as you mentioned, this story has existed in, you know, religious space for major world religions and has been told just time and time again in ways to talk about unconditional love and things like that. But it's also been misused and it's been used to justify spousal abuse. It's been used to justify denigration and sexism. So I think I'm wanting to push back against that, but not because I want people to walk away and feel like we have some new agenda and we're just doing a different version of the same thing. Sure. But what I really want is I I want this to exist as a story that, that people from different perspectives can experience together. And then it allows them to kind of step inside that story and have a conversation about things that they think, things that they feel, things that have happened to them without it feeling so dangerous anymore. And that's part of what's been so deeply rewarding about this film already is seeing that occur after screenings of people who are able to say, you know, a version of this happened to me and I now want to talk with folks about it. Or, you know, I've been told, you know, maybe for people who've grown up in really conservative religious traditions, especially within evangelical Christianity, that that women so often have carried this kind of symbolism of sin or human depravity or whatever that is, that that, there's so much deep pain that's lasted for many, many years of a person's life because they keep hearing the stories told that way, Mm -hmm. that they are brought to a a place of healing because of the way that we've asked them to just reimagine these characters. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go further than that because I think I want the story to be able to exist in a big and welcoming way where people can step into it, like it or dislike it, engage with part of it and not another, but be able to move through it and hopefully glean something from it without needing to say like, give a thumbs up or a thumbs down as though it's this like binary response to a piece of art. That's such a beautiful approach to
0: this. And and I love just the idea of stripping off some of the cultural costumes that these stories have worn over the centuries even. And at the same time, stripping them back from some of the cultural charades, I guess, or some of the things we've imposed on these stories, but then at the same time, bringing them into a modern context, you know, with this young woman who, you know, I don't know the time period that it was meant to portray, but it's very modern time period. You know, it's not ancient Israel that we're dealing with in the the film at all. I think that's a beautiful and refreshing way of handling a story that I think really can speak to people regardless of their worldview or regardless of where they're coming from. People can approach this story and find themselves in it. And
2: that the decision both when it is and where it is, um, it, it's present day and it's set in Oklahoma, which Michael and I both have interesting ties to Oklahoma, but that was intentional because I wanted people, I wanted it to feel close and present and real. I think one of the dangers in Any story, but especially in filmmaking is it can allow you a kind of abstraction that pushes the story outside of you. And especially, oh my gosh, like we're living in this time right now where primarily what we want to consume is escapism because the world is this crazy, scary place right now, which again is is something that's changed kind of over the process of making this film. But choosing to set it present day, choosing to set it in a place like Oklahoma City right in the buckle of the Bible Belt, I wanted it to be in a space where... Well, part part of the decision making on why it was happening in Oklahoma is because I wanted that to reflect some of the cultural and religious institutions that would have been present during Jose and Gomer's time. If you're thinking about the the woman of Gomer growing up or living in a, in a space, probably a town where uh, she was working as a sex worker, where being a prostitute was not at all like a pretty woman type thing where you can just change clothes and marry Richard Gere and <laughs> just make different life decisions. <laughs> um, she had tattoos. She lived in a particular part of the city. She was marked and known by everyone as being a particular person. And that kind of person, because of the religiosity of the space that she was living in, was judged. There was no way for her to not be judged by the institutions inside of which she was living. And so I wanted to set the movie in a place where Kate, our main character, was living and being amongst similar social norms that made her constantly feel other that made her constantly feel judged so that even just walking into a room she felt exposed and vulnerable and i think i love oklahoma i live there there are wonderful people there not to judge oklahoma but there is some because of some of the religiosity of that space it carries some of those same trappings for someone like kate and so Having it set in that space and having it set present day, making her feel like a real person in our world was deeply important to us.
0: Michael and Ryan, thank you both for spending this time with me on Makers and Mystics. I love the film. I love what you're doing. And thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, man.
2: Thanks, dude. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening
0: to the Makers and Mystics podcast. If you've been inspired by the podcast, please leave us a kind review on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics. If you'd like to support the production of this podcast, you can join our creative collective at patreon.com slash Mystics. Patrons of the podcast enjoy additional content, regular book clubs, and community interaction. Your generosity has enabled us to curate over 150 conversations on art and faith and allows us to continue as a voice of advocacy for the arts. We'll see you again next week, and in the meantime, keep creating. The world needs your art.